Integrity is defined as the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. Integrity is moral uprightness. Integrity is the ability to maintain your convictions under pressure to do otherwise. In the Battle of Okinawa, Private First Class Desmond Doss saved the lives of over 75 of his fellow soldiers. He did so on an area known as Hacksaw Ridge. What's even more stunning is that he did it without firing one bullet, without even carrying a weapon. Doss wanted to serve his country, but he was a Seventh-day Adventist and a committed pacifist. Despite being ridiculed by the men of his platoon during his training, Doss stuck to his convictions. He maintained his integrity despite ridicule from others and the natural fear of being on a battlefield without a weapon. He was the first person to be awarded the Medal of Honor without ever firing a bullet. We may scoff at his pacifism, but there is something remarkable in seeing a man of such integrity. A man unwilling to the bend to the pressures of others, keeping his confidence and meaning his integrity. When we see such examples in others, we want to develop that kind of integrity in ourselves. But how do we do that? How do we maintain our integrity when tempted to do wrong? In our text this morning, David faces a situation that tests his integrity. He has a real opportunity to vindicate himself. Still, despite pressure from his men, David turns from that temptation and does maintain his integrity and refuses to reach out his hand against Saul. A lesser man might have given in to that pressure, but David doesn't. Instead, he points towards a way that we too can develop and maintain our own integrity by having a clean conscience and by fearing God. David shows us that we can walk in integrity, keeping our conscience clean by fearing God, because he is our judge, and he alone can and should vindicate us. So this morning, as we come to our text, which is found in 1 Samuel chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, Lord, forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. 
And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, you see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice? My son, David. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will you let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this, your word. We ask that as we open this text, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we may behold wonders out of your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Saul, after following the Philippines, is again told where David is, and so takes with him 3,000 of the choice men of Israel to go and search David out in the wilderness of En Gedi, which is another a wilderness place within Judah. Meanwhile, David and his men are hiding in a cave. And Saul happens to go by this cave and goes inside to relieve himself, not knowing that David and his men are hiding within. And David, at the encouragement of his men, sneaks forward, but instead of killing him, he cuts off a corner of his garment without Saul even noticing. But even this bothers David's conscience. After Saul leaves the cave, David follows him out, a risky move, to prove to Saul his innocence. He shows him the corner of his garment that he cut off, and he pleads with God to judge between them. In a rare, very rare moment of wisdom, Saul sees that David is innocent and that he will be king one day. He pleads with David not to cut off his name when he becomes king, And then they go their separate ways. There are two movements in this episode, both of which give us an indication of how we may develop and maintain our integrity. The first is the moment of temptation, David's response to Saul in the cave. 
In the exchange with his men, David shows us the importance of having a clean conscience. And then secondly, David falls on the mercy of the Lord, pleading with the Lord to vindicate him instead of taking matters into his own hands. And here we see that it's David's fear of God that is the foundation for his integrity. So I want to look at both of these as this episode unfolds. First, by having a clean conscience. There David is, hiding in the cave, an apt image for the state of his life as a fugitive hiding from Saul, when all of the sudden, who should appear at the entrance of the cave but Saul himself? I mean, just think about it. He has been running from this guy. And all of a sudden, right there, right at arm's length, is Saul. Without his army, If you've ever entered a a cave or a dark room from being in the daylight, you know that it takes time for your eyes to adjust to the light. Remember that David is the leader of all those who are in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is bitter in soul. Some may have been in debt and embittered at Saul. They have just as much stake in wanting Saul not as king any longer. They also don't seem to have the integrity that David does. They see this as a God-given opportunity for David to get vengeance on his enemy. And David is tempted to listen to them. But just the act of cutting Saul's garment provokes David's conscience. He says in verse 6, He said to the men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. Not because of his character or his actions, but because of his office, David respects Saul, refusing to take matters into his own hands. Notice in verse 5, David's heart struck him. The heart there refers to David's conscience. Your conscience is that inner voice that tells you something is right or wrong. One theologian defines the conscience in this way. Quote, it is a self-awareness, a reflective faculty within myself that enables me to reflect upon myself. Specifically, it enables me to think about the rightness or wrongness of my words, actions, and thoughts and it tends, and because I have some sense that this awareness of right and wrong may have something to do with God, it tends to make me averse to wrong and want to do the right. That is to say, it pushes or pulls my will. It is my inner voice. End quote. But maybe you know it better from that other theologian, Walt Disney. Always let your conscience be your guide, so says the fairy in Disney's Pinocchio. And after which Jiminy Cricket, who in the story is supposed to be Pinocchio's conscience, he says this to him. Yep, temptations. They're the wrong things that seem right at the time. But even though the right things may seem wrong sometimes, be right at the time or vice versa. Do you understand? Jiminy Cricket is supposed to be the conscience of Pinocchio. But Pinocchio gets himself into a series of problems because he doesn't listen to his conscience and he's supposed to when he gets into trouble remember he's supposed to blow a little whistle make a little whistle and then his conscience will be his guide to get him out of that trouble now 
This story might raise more questions than it answers, but it's helpful in illustrating what the conscience does. Uh, Some of the questions that we might still have is, why does my conscience lead me in this direction, but yours doesn't? How come our consciences don't agree? How can I trust my conscience? Is it reliable? There is a paradoxical truth to the conscience, and that is that it, it should always be obeyed. But it's not, at the same time, it's not always reliable. Paul outlines this when he addresses a problem of conscience facing the church in Corinth concerning food sacrificed to idols. The principles he lays out are instructive for us when we face matters of conscience. I'm not going to read the text for you just to outline Paul's argument, but I would encourage you to go and read it on your own. It's found in 1 Corinthians 8. Had we embodied some of the principles that Paul outlines there, I wonder if we might have fared better during this pandemic. You see, in Corinth, it was a, like any Greco-Roman city filled with idolatry. And part of the worship of the Greek pantheon of gods included sacrificing, to anim- to God, sacrificing animals to the gods. Most of the time, the meat from the sacrifice was later sold in the meat market. So you would sacrifice to Aphrodite, and then the meat would be taken and then sold in the market later on. And it turns out that most of the meat sold in the market came from the temples of idols. So there was a real crisis of conscience that this new budding Christian church was facing. Some people's conscience was telling them that this was bad. They really shouldn't eat meat that had been just sacrificed to an idol. But others people's conscience wasn't bothered by this at all. They were getting the best tenderloins down there at the temple of Aphrodite, and they weren't bothered. And eventually, they wrote to the Apostle Paul to get his advice on what to do. And Paul writes back and says some shocking things that didn't really leave anyone satisfied. They were hoping for an answer like, just this is right and this is wrong. But he he says yes and no. First, he said, look, an idol is nothing. That is, there's no objective reality behind an idol. He says later in chapter 10, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, those saints whose consciences weren't bothered are thinking, yep, see, told you. I knew we can get those ribeyes. But Paul wasn't done. He says that just because it doesn't bother your conscience doesn't mean that you should do it. For there is a more fundamental truth. For the person whose conscience is bothered by eating food offered to idols, they must not eat it because that would go against their conscience or, as he puts it, defile their conscience. Which is it? I can eat it. Means nothing, an idol is nothing, meat sacrifice to idols is nothing. But if it bothers me, I can't do it because it would defile my conscience. How do I know? He gives an example. First Corinthians eight and verse ten. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, that's the person who doesn't have any scruples over eating meat sacrificed to idol. It's not doesn't bother his conscience at all. For that person If somebody whose conscience is bothered, if he sees you eating 
Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So is it a sin to eat meat sacrificed to idols? No, yes. It depends on the context and the conscience of the person in question. One question that comes over this is whether the weaker brother, the one whose conscience is bothered by something that is not necessarily sin, do they always stay the weaker brother? The answer to that is no, but they can. It's possible for our consciences to be conformed to what Scripture calls sin. And then, after a period of time and maturity, maybe you come to realize that, oh, yeah, an idol is nothing. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This meat is not sacrificed to anything. It, and then it becomes where it doesn't bother your conscience. But it might be that that person never overcomes that, that it always bothers their conscience. So conscience is tricky. The unalterable position is that our conscience must be kept clean. We must not go against our conscience. If you sense that this is wrong and you and I should not do this, then as Paul said in Romans 10, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you, if you feel strongly that something is wrong and you, you go against your conscience and you do it anyway, then you are in sin whether or not that thing is sinful or not, because you have violated your conscience. Part of the problem we have been having lately revolves around the liberty of conscience. The church in Corinth got into their trouble because they were not honoring their brothers and sisters in Christ by allowing them to have the liberty of conscience. But the one who ate meat sacrificed was destroying the brother whose conscience told him not to, and vice versa as the one who thought eating meat sacrificed to idols was really sin. We have done the same thing when it comes to things like vaccines. Are vaccines anything? Can they commend you to God? Can you add one day to your life by being vaccinated? In an area where conscience, conscience should be our guide, Christian charity should be the principle that governs our conduct. Not whether or not I believe that my conscience is right or yours is not. Your witness to a watching world is not whether you are vaccinated or not. Your witness to the world is whether you can honor the conscience of someone who thinks differently than you on matters indifferent. We also need to keep in mind the danger of going against our conscience. David faces pressure from men who think he should take this opportunity to get rid of Saul. And you might imagine that they have developed sophisticated theological justification for doing so. David's going to be the future king. He's basically the civil magistrate. Saul's an unjust king. He's not living righteously. I mean, you could, you could make a case. You could reason it out and think God would be blessing this. And God has delivered him right into our hands. This must be from God. 
but David would have violated his conscience were he to bend under the pressure of others. But because David doesn't, he maintains his integrity in trusting his care to God, who as his judge can vindicate him from every one of Saul's accusations. In truth, having a clean conscience is not easy. We're sinful and fallen creatures. It's not just that our consciences are our guide, but our conscience is also a prosecutor, reminding us often of the many ways that we have not kept our conscience clean. This is why we need to remember that our conscience is not the last word in the matter. To cleanse our conscience, we need to remind ourselves that God is our judge, and He has vindicated us in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. That is, his, he has a clean conscience. I'm not acquitted. That doesn't mean that I haven't done something wrong. Why? Because God is his judge. He is the one who will expose the self-assured Pharisee's guilt and acquit the sinful publican. So we must cleanse our conscience by reminding ourselves of what God has said. Does your conscience, conscience cry, sinner, good? Our Lord Jesus came to save sinners. Does your conscience cry, guilty? Then meet it with the promise, there is therefore now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has declared you to be right. So silence the guilty conscience with the promises of God resting in the finished work of Christ. But after doing so, stick to this principle. Don't go against your conscience. When it says no, then don't do it. When it says yes, check it by the word of God and then do it with all your might. Since God is our judge, we must walk in integrity, keeping our conscience clean by fearing God. Not only does David keep his conscience clean by not killing Saul when he had the chance, but he also shows us the importance of fearing God. What David does next is is kind of shocking. He has a holy boldness to his actions. After David restrained his men from attacking Saul, he followed Saul and yelled after him. Imagine that. I don't know precisely what the area looked like, but caves are usually, there's not an exit. Sometimes there might be a rear exit, but usually you come in one way and you go out the same way. David is trapped. Imagine that Saul goes into this and he's got 3,000 men outside. And David, without caring about that, goes out to plead his cause before Saul. There's a holy boldness to that. I can't imagine how scary he leaves the safety of the cave just so he can plead with Saul. 
First, we see that based on what David says and coupled with his actions, we learn that his courage to plead his cause because he ultimately fears God, not men. He entrusts himself to the God who will judge everyone. It's better to fall into the hands of God than men. David will say later in 2 Samuel. Ultimately, David fears God more than man. He says in verse 11, See, my father, see the corner of the robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. David declares his innocence. He says, look, I could have killed you. If the rumors are true, then why wouldn't I have? This was the perfect opportunity. But you are seeking something that is not true. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 12 15, the fool is always right and doesn't listen to the wisdom of others. You can imagine that there were some, not least of which Jonathan, his own son, who told Saul that David was not guilty. But likely there are plenty egging him on who also hate David and want him killed. Maybe fellow soldiers. Jealous. David. Saul kills his thousands. David is ten thousands. Who's this David guy? I've been in the army for 25 years. Passed over for promotion. Still first sergeant. You can imagine bitterness growing within the ranks. And then subtly speaking in Saul's ear. David. David wants to take the kingdom from you. David is committing treason. David wants to do you harm. David is setting a trap for you. Saul has been listening to these lies. Maybe he's just telling them himself, but doubtless others are contributing to it. Because of his pride and his arrogance, he's blind to see the truth. He sees what he wants to see and is being driven deeper and deeper in his mad rage to destroy The question is that both think they are right. My guess is that Saul's conscience is sending up all kinds of warnings on the inside. But the lesson of Saul is the lesson of Romans 1. See, God eventually gives sinners over to what they want. And through the habit of going against their conscience repeatedly, their consciences are seared. They no longer consider that a problem. It's no longer. They don't feel anything. They're numb. They sin boldly. Not only do they know that sin is wrong, but they agree with those who do it, Paul says. In Romans 1, God gives them over to what they want. But David has a clean conscience, which causes David to plead his case to Saul. And now he has proof. He's got the corner of his garment. And then he calls on God to judge. God will judge between me and you. God will declare me innocent. And David does this because he fears God. What does it mean to fear God? Why is the fear of God essential for walking in integrity? To fear God is not to be afraid of God. Fearing God in that way causes us to hide from Him. 
This is the kind of fear Adam and Eve had in the garden when they hid from God after eating from the tree God told them not to eat from. Out of shame and nakedness, they hide from God in fear so as not to be exposed. Moses sets these two types of fear side by side when he says to Israel in Exodus 20, 20, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. What? Do not fear God wants to see if you fear him? I don't follow. How does this work? Moses is saying, do not shrink back from God and be afraid, but remember who you are and remember who God is. The fear commended by God is a holy reverence that properly orientates us as creatures to our creator. God is God and you are not. There is a fear, a reverence, an awe. Fearing God is keeping his word. It is the humble gratitude that flows from the apprehension of who God is and all that he has done for us in redemption, accomplished and applied. We know that we are not God. And so we respond in obedience. But for David, the fear of God is manifested in his recognition that what really matters is not what Saul thinks, but what God thinks. Jesus warned his disciples, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Ultimately, it matters not what man thinks of us, nor even what man can do to us. What matters is what God thinks of you and what God can do to you. There are only two ways. Either God and, and either God will be glorified. Either you will be vindicated or you will be judged. David casts himself on the mercy of God for in this particular situation, he has a clean conscience. And God does vindicate him by opening Saul's eyes to see that David is innocent. Saul makes an out-of-character statement. He said to David, verse 17, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Because of this, Saul knows that David will be king. Why? Because David was righteous. David has integrity. If David had feared men rather than God, he would have tried to vindicate himself, which is what separates him from Saul. Had he not trusted in God to vindicate him, he would have taken matters into his own hands. He would have executed Saul. And that's what we've seen Saul do time and time again. God tells him to do it this way. He doesn't. He goes and does his own thing. David says, no, vengeance is not mine. I will not stretch out my hand because vengeance comes to the Lord and he will repay. What's more, David did this not knowing for sure that Saul would respond the way he did. We know the end. But Saul, David didn't know that. 
David didn't know that Saul would say, you are more righteous, and yet he still steps out in faith and places himself in the hands of God. He had no way of knowing that Saul would not disregard his conscience and go ahead and kill David right then. But it didn't matter. David, it's better for me to fall into the hands of God than that I should continue to run from this tyrant. God will vindicate me. We hear this story of David and and we identify ourselves with righteous David, but the more likely scenario is that we are Saul. Most likely we would have been among the crowds who came at night seeking to kill the innocent son of David, Jesus, who also entrusted himself to his father, not fearing the false judgments of men. He who could have called down legions and vindicated himself right there. He could have said, yes, I'm the king, I'm the son of God. Boom! And just destroyed Roman Empire. Now, that would have been nothing for him. But he doesn't vindicate himself. He let himself be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before shearer silent, he opened not his mouth. I surely know I would have been among the crowds of the people yelling, crucify him! Crucify him! But even in his passive obedience, the innocent, righteous sufferer was vindicated. God vindicated by raising him up from the dead on the third day. And in victory over the grave, Christ takes possession of the kingdom. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen. Talk is cheap. It's your actions that reveal your heart and its motivation. Holding fast our integrity like David and, and Jesus is a goal we may aspire to, but when the rubber hits the road, we become pragmatic and often choose the fear of men rather than God. The expression, the fear of God that we find throughout Scripture is rich with connotations for which have only barely scratched the surface. It is a phrase that so that talks about piety and attitude and action that inclines us out of reverence and awe towards obedience to God and His Word. This heart attitude motivates our actions of obedience, which provides the very fabric for our integrity. I said, begin this sermon, I mentioned that integrity is a moral uprightness, but it can also be defined as the state of being whole and undivided. In C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, the people who inhabit heaven are the solid ones, whereas the, those who are from below are ghosts, are mere wraiths of their former selves, and they run screaming from the presence of a world that is so solid and substantial You could say that the Christian life is making you solid. It is the process of making you whole, of forming integrity in you. Facing the pressure to conform, David is tempted against conscience not to fear God, but to take matters into his own hands. But he withstood that temptation. 
adding another band of tensile strength to his integrity. But however well David does here, there comes a time when David is tempted, and instead of listening to his conscience, he silences it, committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband to cover it up. After much time, Nathan confronts David with his sin, and listen to this response. 2 Samuel twelve thirteen. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David is like us. He has integrity one day and the next. But the forgiveness of God is for those who acknowledge their sin and do not try to hide it. Father, I have no integrity. Forgive me. He replies, I know but my son has enough for you. Rest in him. You are forgiven. Hearing that declaration from God, our judge, the only judge, we stand up. We wash our face. And with fresh strength, we begin again to walk in integrity, keeping our conscience clean by fearing God. Amen? Let's pray. Who will save us from this wretched body of death? Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors. Father, we want integrity. We want to be whole. We want to be substantial and solid people. We want to face the pressures of temptation and not give in. We want to be people of integrity. Conform us to Christ. We confess that we are not. Our conscience is screaming at us of all the sins and the ways that we have failed. Cleanse us from sin and wash us that we would be clean. Strengthen the knees that are weak and place us on straight paths that we may walk before you in integrity by keeping our conscience clean and by fearing you. We pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen, saints. Let's, let's stand together and respond by singing hymn number eight. My faith looks